You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protean Machining. And this week, I'm joined by Jeff Sapp of Akluma. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for coming. Yeah, for sure. So before we get into your backstory, what is Akluma? What do you do now? Where can they find you online? All the, all the good stuff. All right. So Akluma, we make LED stuff, mostly flashlights, but then... Every now and then we'll just kind of make off the wall stuff. And we're on Instagram mostly. I post a lot there. I post stories up. We do have a Facebook group, but Instagram's kind of where I hang out mostly. What what was the other question? Uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, Instagram or okluma.com. There's we got our stuff up for sale on okluma.com. So Oh, that was it. So let's get into, you know, how did you get to where you are now? Because you've got some new machinery in the last year and you just, it seems like you're constantly just out of stock and blowing up. So, you know, how did you get to that point? Yeah, it's, it's a little wild. So in high school, I worked in a machine shop growing up. I think I started working there when I was like 15. It's called Mertz. It's in Ponca City, Oklahoma. And they made really big equipment for companies like Caterpillar and Halliburton. And I don't know if you remember the, the it was kind of like the world's biggest dump truck that made a big deal about in the 90s. Mertz made the bed for that, for Caterpillar. Oh, geez. So when yeah. you're talking big stuff. Yeah, that's... really, really big stuff. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of where I got introduced to machining. How'd you jump into that job? I mean, it seems like you know, it kind was of a, a random thing. Yeah, it was a it was a family friend. He was the general manager there. And mostly like I, like I started when I was 15, so I just ran errands and cleaned eventually i ended up like working on their computers a little bit but we did like i did get to do a little bit of machining i rode bmx bicycles a lot at the time and my first like real machining project where i was like highly supervised was to make an axle so like i think that was probably 1995 we made an axle for a 20 inch bmx bike oh cool like yeah it was kind of the first thing i still have one of the original ones that we made um oh wow yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. And I just got to see a lot of the stuff that those guys would do, which is just like kind of amazing. You know, back in the nineties, there weren't cell phones and there wasn't the internet really. It was just like a bunch of old, really talented guys doing, I don't know, just cool stuff. So let's see, that was probably 95 ish. And then I, I worked there till I was about 18 or 19 and I went to college. And when I went to college, I bought, uh, you know, the Grizzly mini mill and the mini lathe. And just like kind of drug those around with me for quite a while, probably, I don't know, 10 years or so. And then I think around 2008, 2009, I ended up going back to Votech school. I went to Francis Tuttle in Oklahoma City and went through their machining program, start to finish, started with a file and then ended up, you know, on the CNC machines. And then eventually I ended up doing a little substitute teaching work for them. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that was kind of fun. And that's uh, where the okay and Okluma comes from? Yeah, that's right. It was kind of a it was kind of a joke. My friend made up that name and he was like, Okluma. Because at first we were okay Lumen and he's like, No, 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 man, you gotta change the name. I was, <laughs> I was like, Okay, oh, oh you know, what do you got? And he's like, What about Okluma? You know, it was close enough to Okuma. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And it was a little bit abstract. And then some people don't know if they're supposed to say okay Luma or you know, there's a little bit, a uh, bit of ambiguity, ambiguity there. I kind of like that. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I would fully admit the first time I saw something of yours pop up on Instagram, I was like, huh, Kuma's posting some interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, we did, uh, we did a few little magnets. I had a buddy mock up a, 
SVG with their logo and our name, and we made a few Okuma magnets. Of course, they only went to friends, you know, no no one saw those, but yeah, we did make a few of those. That's very cool. So you you went back to Votech school. How did you decide to start making flashlights or or what? Was that even a decision or just kind of a happenstance? Uh, It was kind of weird. I went on a motorcycle trip and right before I left, I bought a kind of, uh, it was an off-road motorcycle trip, rode up to Canada and then down to Mexico on the continental divide. And right before I left, I bought a pretty expensive flashlight. I thought, you know, it was like 60 or 70 bucks. And it was, I was in Southern Colorado somewhere. It was like, I hadn't been out very long. And I hit a bush and pulled out a fuel line and I was like, okay, I got this. It was dark. I grabbed the flashlight and went to turn it on and it didn't turn on. And I was, I was pretty bummed about that. Oh no. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge deal. You know, the fuel didn't come out that fast. So I got it all taken care of. But the real bummer was I got back. Once I got home, I called the company. I was like, Hey man, can I get this fixed? And they're like, no, no, we don't, we don't fix them. You just have to buy a new one. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was kind of like. That was, I was like, oh, I, I think I could do better than this. That was a, you know, mechanical stuff breaks. We all know that. It's like, right. you know, wears out, you use it, it breaks. It just happens. So that was fine. That wasn't a big deal. It was just the fact that they wouldn't fix it. I was a little, I was a little irked that they were just so cavalier about, oh, just throw it away and buy a new one. <laughs> so, yeah. So I just like, I got on the internet and found a flashlight forum and there was a dude who was making some flashlights. I kind of looked for one of his, but he wasn't making them anymore. And I was like, you know, I've got a lathe. I could probably just make one of those. So I made, I made four and I was like, I'll just make one for myself and make three and sell those three. And the three were gone in a weekend. And I was like, oh, Hey, this is kind of cool. So yeah, I made those on, at that time I had a LeBlanc lathe in the garage. So I made, made four on the LeBlanc lathe, sold them in a weekend. And then the next, like a couple of weeks later, I made I think I made 20 and then, you know, I did a couple batches of 20 and it just kind of got out of hand. And then maybe like a year or two later, I was able to afford the Daewoo links that we have now, or one of the Daewoo links, excuse me, one of the links that we have now. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It it seems like that's a origin story of a lot of people is a pain point in your life. And, you know, you'd be happy, happily paying for something and it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, you know, I, I think I could do this. And and there was a guy and he had some, and I really liked his design. He just, he just wasn't doing it anymore. And I was like, I guess, I guess I can make one of these. So it was kind of fun. And where did you source all your electronics when you started in the beginning? Cause I know oh. one of our questions from Cody Gibson was, you know, what, what's the process of starting a flashlight? I think he wanted to make his own. So, oh, Cody, you should send me a message and I'll just walk you through it. There's a a lot of different places online. Uh, Mountain Electronics is a big popular place. They're uh, stateside. And then there's Kai Domain. They're in China, I believe. There's a couple places like that. And you can just buy components, bits and pieces, drivers, emitters, switches, buttons, stuff like that. So, Okay, cool. Yeah. And that, that's what you started with, was just buying stuff off the shelf and then making yeah. the packaging yeah, all, for it? Yeah, all off-the-shelf stuff and... I think now, I think pretty much everything is made for us with the exception of a few small parts, just like to get things just right. It was like, oh, we need to have someone make this. But yeah, off the shelf is the way to go. It's it's super easy. You can get a driver, some emitters, a switch and and spend, you know, a weekend on a lathe and have a flashlight. It's it's not too hard. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that's something I 
we'll probably end up having to do because I've got a lathe sitting there and, you know, hey, I'll find mom. the time. Yeah. You, you know, it's kind of funny. You had uh, Jason from Prometheus on mm-hmm. like uh, not too long ago. He had a machinist kit on his website and that was kind of how I got started actually. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. He's super cool, dude. He's a super nice guy. So far, I mean, it's it's only been you and him, but everybody I've met in the flashlight community has been pretty fantastic. So, where are you at now? What what does Akluma look like? What kind of machinery do you have? You know, what what's the company look like? All right. So we just moved from Oklahoma City to yeah. I just we just moved. I, it was probably close to a year ago now. We moved from Oklahoma City to Colorado Springs. I had two great employees in Oklahoma city and they both ended up staying in Oklahoma city. So it's just me right now. We've got the, we've got the LeBlanc lathe that I started everything on. We had a bridge pour for a little bit, but I sold that just for the space. We've got the original Daewoo links. It was made in 1999 and we made most of the flashlights on that. We've got a Dusan DNM 4,500 that I kind of use for fixtures and just kind of like odds and ends and stuff like that. Um, and then we recently got the Dusan Lynx LSYB, which is just an amazing machine. I'm like so, so happy with it. It's fantastic. Like we had some parts that we were doing on the, the old Lynx and the DNM uh, 4500 where we had clip holes and you'd have to like, so we do one up and then put it in the mill and then drill and tap a hole and then rotate it, like rotate it by hand in a fixture, drill and tap another hole, put it back in the lathe and then do the final op. So you had like a four op part between those two machines. And then the new links has, uh, you know, a sub spindle, it's got Y and it just like, I can just load in a bar and it makes those parts and they're perfect. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, it took some work, you know, it took some work to get them perfect, but. Yeah, you just load in like a four foot long bar and it's pretty, it's pretty magic. So since it's fresh in your mind, let's jump into the lathe aspect. Both Joe from Cobra Profane Building and Fort Manufacturing were asking about the the lathe. Joe was kind of interested in what the real world expectation should be because, you know, a lot of people talk a big game of like, oh, subspindle lathes and live tooling and it's the, the print money button and like it's super easy and it doesn't seem, you know, the more you dive into it, it seems like, ah, eh, maybe that's not the the hunt, the full case. Yeah. Well, first, before you print money, you have to like shell out a whole bunch of money. That's just kind of the way it works. <laughs> you know, the machine wasn't cheap, you know, and then tooling is never cheap. It's manufacturing. That's just the way it works. The live tool holders are expensive. You know, they kind of go from like anywhere from two to seven or eight thousand dollars a piece, which is a little bit more than I was expecting, but you know, you know, whatever. They are fantastic like they're so capable machines i need to be kind of vague about this but i was talking to someone who works on these machines a lot and i asked him for an example of uh live tooling like i've done quite a bit of the g code by hand not with fusion and so he was sending me some code to tell me out with that and he sent me a file called upper receiver.nc <laughs> and uh, yeah this company ran upper receivers on, I think it was, I think it was a Puma. It was the next step up, but they run lights out upper receivers in a lathe, which was just like, I was like, it just blew my mind. I was like, wow, that's crazy. That is, that's a lot of mill work to put in a lathe. Yeah. 
Yeah, the the local the local Deuce on Tech was telling me that some some companies just sell their mills. You know, they get a bunch of Pumas and they sell their mills and run parts off a bar. So they're certainly capable machines. It's not you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to get going. I don't think, but once you get going, it's pretty amazing. So the other things he wanted to know, like what about programming and sub you know sub spindle clearances and all that, like. How much dialing in are you having to do to get a program where you're happy? So, let's see. Some. So we had those parts that we're running on the old links, and it probably took me two to three days to stick the programs together, and then to get the spindle transfer right, and then to get the, you know, the origin set right on the sub spindle, and then get the tools moved over, and just like some of that was a learning process with the lathe. You know, like we figure out what tools fit in which holders and how much clearance you need between the the back of the turret, which is actually an issue. I was kind of surprised by that. But between the back of the turret and the and the sub. So that yeah, you know, that took some work. I was I was a little surprised by that. I did think it was gonna be a little more magic, but yeah. We got it working. And then what about like chip management? Have you are you comfortable to the point where you feel good, you know, leaving it for hours on end just making parts or is it something that you still feel like you need to check in on periodically so occasionally there's a few of the parts we make where i need to work on the chip control a little bit better though the chips will actually accumulate in the collet in the sub spindle and it's usually not a big deal the parts catcher will usually like give me an error and it'll just stop running but we have smushed a part or two between the the sub and the main spindle when the sub goes to grab it there's a part that's like kind of stuck right on the edge of the collet and just like smushes them and then that always obviously an error so but i feel pretty comfortable you know like loading in a, a four foot bar and just like letting it run it's really did you get a do. bar feeder with that i did not like our circuits are we've run a lot of titanium and the cycle times on just a single four foot bar is pretty good you know okay that makes so, sense yeah that, that definitely makes sense plus it was the mill is sitting where the bar feeder would go so i, I yeah <laughs> that would make it a little hard for sure. Yeah. yeah, we did. When we moved from Oklahoma City to Colorado Springs, we had to downsize quite a bit. We had a 4,500 square foot shop in Oklahoma City just because it was so cheap. Like it was ridiculously cheap. That sounds then, so lavish. <laughs> was, well, we had a, we had quarter pipe. We had a, a big mini ramp for bicycles and skateboards in the old shop. It was that bit and a climbing wall. Wow. <laughs> it was just, it was absurd. You know, it was like, it was close to my house. The rent was, it was obscenely cheap. It wasn't in the best part of town, but you know, and then, then we moved up here and I think, I think we're at like 2000 square feet or 1800 square feet. And the rent is not quite double, but close. So Oof. yeah, but you know, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So then on to Ben from Fort Manufacturing's question. So he said, knowing what you know now, would you have upgraded to a Y-axis subspindle lathe sooner? I, I don't think so. I think just because we make flashlights, it's, it's mostly round stuff. I was a little bit averse to having debt. Like the, the new Lynx was the first machine that we actually took out a note for. And, you know, I thought it was a good, a good time to do it. You know, we lost two employees. Now it's just me. I was trying to like figure out a way to, you know, like take, take the burden off me, like automate things a little bit more. And it just made sense to, to go ahead and take the leap and do the lathe. Uh, but if I was a job shop, I would absolutely just do it. I'd be like, okay, 
I can run all these parts on, on the slave and just, yeah, I just do it. Okay. And then what do you see as an absolute must have options for a lathe? Oh, like, I really think that depends on the parts you're running. You know, if you're, if it's, they're just simple parts, you know, you can do that with a, an X and a Z and it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot. Our old lengths didn't even have a parts catcher. So we had a, like a yoga mat and a little crate and uh-huh. we, we had, the, you know, a little tuning with the yoga mat and a few magnets and you could like get the parts to roll off and not bump each other. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's not ideal, but we made it work, but having the, the Y and the, the sub and parts like, we don't even just have a parts catcher. We have a conveyor now, which is just amazing. You know, like they just roll out of the lathe and you don't even have to get your hands wet. I mean, <laughs> they get a little wet, but not too bad, you know? Right. Right. So, right. So are there any options that you skipped out on that you wish you had got? No, uh, the, you know, the high pressure coolant would mm-hmm. have been a, maybe a, a nicer option to get. We've got some, a few deep holes in titanium and it would be a little bit nicer to get the chips out, but it's not too big of a deal. We'll see what else. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it so far. Pretty happy with it. Okay. So you've mentioned titanium. That's somewhat of a pain sometimes. Rabbit Pickup asked, what's the worst and best material to work with or that you work with? I actually like titanium a lot. I like titanium more than I like aluminum. You just got to run it a little bit slower and don't expect it to cut like aluminum and you'll be fine. The materials I hate are like any of the Damascus style materials, you know, with the two materials or three materials welded together and then twisted and you know like you get hit hard spots in those and it's it's like an interrupted cut all the time and it's super noisy and it's hard on the tools but people really like that stuff so it's not my hey yeah i don't like that material at all (laughs) (laughs) i I think no you're not the first person on the show to have said that um i think josh hacko said very similar about making timascus main plates for his watches yeah yeah, and then some of that stuff, like the the dark Damascus, has zirconium in it. I've I've had a few zirconium fires. Like I really try to avoid that, but you know, that's happened a few times before. Not fun, not no, fun at all. I I I to- I've seen a titanium fire in a machine, or Ugh. I saw titanium light magnesium that was not washed out. Oh, it was no. uh, thankfully nothing bad happened, but it was like, oh no! Of course, like all of the guys were just standing around, kind of watching it for about five seconds while the only female machinist around ran off to get the fire extinguisher and came back and said, what the hell are you guys doing? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, The worst, the worst fire we had was actually in the blonde, the LeBlanc lathe. Oh, really? Yeah. It was at the end of the day and I was just tired and I was just roughing some material in. Um, cause you know, it comes with like a bow in it, you know, it's not perfectly straight. It's got the weird crusty stuff on the outside and I was just cutting that off and, getting it straight enough that I could actually put it in the spindle liner. And I was just not being careful and caught the chip tray on fire and had to pull the chip tray out. And I definitely needed a fire extinguisher for that. So yes, no fun. No, but it was better than, you know, catching your $140,000 lathe on fire. So totally. Oh yeah. yeah. It was like no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) So in that same vein, staying blade works asked, how do you handle customers requesting options over and above what you offer or more materials over and above what you offer. Yeah. That's a good question. We've got some weird requests. Like we've had some customers request like gold and silver or platinum. Oh geez. And I, yeah, I just say no. 
it's like, no, this isn't worth the liability. And then, you know, some things the customer will ask for, and I think it's just a bad idea. We used to anodize a lot of titanium and it just doesn't wear very well or like, it looks amazing. Like when you first do it and you take a picture of it, it looks fantastic. But then once it's been in your pocket for like six months, it just doesn't look very good. So I, I do my best to, to be smart about, you know, what's going to be the best for the customer. And I don't mind telling the customer, no, I'll just be like, I'm sorry, we, we don't do that. We don't do this. When we first started, I was like, I would jump through hoops and do anything. If the customer wanted like, I don't know, weird machine to features in the light, I would, I would do that. And now I just don't Now you know, the code is running and it works good and it's so dialed and there's not a chance I'm going to mess with it. So, right. yeah. Right. His other question was, do you prefer, right? Well, it sounds like you have answered that, but do you prefer regular production or one-off high-end project? Definitely the, the production stuff. I always feel a little bit, you know, the production or excuse me, the high-end projects kind of get out of hand. It's like, all right, well, you know, the shop rates a hundred bucks an hour or 120 bucks an hour. And this is going to take me 40 hours and it, this is just going to be obscene. You know, I was like, right. no, no, that's, that's a bad idea. Someone else will do that for you, but we're, we're busy. So that's a, a fair answer. I mean, yeah. I, I, I know that there are definitely people out there who would gladly quote 40 hours, but yeah, you know, it, it sounds like you're having fun doing what you, you're doing and that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy making flashlights and it's fun. And then sometimes you just gotta say no. So. And then also Doug Demaglow asked, how do you feel when people hit you up to work with new materials? So are there any new materials recently that you have started working with that you hadn't in the past? So we just did a few lights out of dark time Ascus, and that was again, not my favorite. Right. Um, those Zirconium are, in general, I've heard kind of bad things about. Yeah, we've, we've done that. We've done Zirconium, just like straight up Zirconium for quite a while. And I, I don't like it, you know, it, <laughs> it catches on fire and I don't like fires. So uh, if you're careful, it's not too bad, but like the crazy materials, you know, you really have to, there's a lot more work that goes into those lights and like more than just machining them. You gotta <laughs> have like a perfect surface finish on them. They gotta, they gotta be polished. And then you gotta, you know, usually, and you know, torch them to bring the color out and you gotta get that right. And if that's not right, you could kind of got to start back at, you know, you don't have to obviously machine the part again, but you got to start the finish over again. Right. So yeah, not a fan. I really like just straight titanium. It wears really well and you can, I can make them. I'm good at making them now. So yeah. Titanium's yeah. always been very consistent and in, in my experience, like yep. it, it will wear your tools, but like that where you can track and, and kind of yeah. get, get down. So, yeah. So I guess uh, on, in that same vein, what's the oddest request you've gotten that you have done or that you haven't done that you can share? Oh, for flashlights? Yeah. Or just in general? Or just in general, yeah, sure. Um, let's see. Uh, I, we have a customer who saw a jaguar, like one of the animals, mm -hmm. and I he needed a, a mount. He, he bought a Jaguar hood ornament from a car and he needed a mount to mount the Jaguar on his bicycle because he saw it while he was riding his bicycle. <laughs> and so we made a little, yeah, little mount for a Jaguar hood ornament to fit on his bicycle. 
Yeah. I'm trying to think of some of the other, we've done some off the wall stuff before. That's probably one of the strangest. We made a Nalgene lantern. That was, that was kind of like my project. That was one of the projects that I did. We took a Nalgene lantern and then built the light into the lid of the Nalgene. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it was kind of cool. It turned out to be a little clunky. Like I just wasn't happy with it. So we might revisit the future probably while we've got too many other projects I want to do, but it was kind of a, a fun, really strange project. So. So speaking of projects, you recently have been posting a lot about a bike light. Oh yeah. How's that yeah. going? Not as fast as I would uh, like it to go. It's so I've done like three or four different bicycle lights and like I'm a cyclist and I'll get some idea in my head and I'll work on it and hit some point and be like, okay, this is definitely a problem in the design. There's no designing around this. Maybe I should start back over. So I think I'm on my fourth iteration and it's, I'm really happy with it right now. It's, I don't know if you guys have seen pictures of it. We had some of them up on the Instagram. It's pretty ugly right now, but it worked really well. I just, <laughs> I just did that race in Utah and right. it um, was, yeah, worked pretty well for that. Yeah, the, the front hub on my bike charged the battery and then I was able to use the battery to charge my cell phone like when I was asleep and then power the light while it was running. And I finished it like two days before I left for the race. It was, <laughs> it was yeah, it was, that's how all my projects go. So, but it worked pretty well. I'm pretty happy with it. And I've got a lot of sketches and a, one model that is promising. And I'm okay. definitely working on it right now. So, and I've got a few writers helping me. I've got some buddies who are pretty talented writers and they've been giving me some feedback. So we're, I don't think I'm going to have anything for sale by the end of the year, but I'd like to have a prototype or two out in, you know, for testing kind of early spring. I think, I think that's, that's doable. So. Okay. Yeah. I, I think you posted it either in your stories or something about the difference between like a tail cap switch and the microprocessor switch. Oh yeah. Yeah. The difference between the, the E switch and just a mechanical switch. Yeah. I, it seems like like it breaks the laws of physics, like the fact that like the e-switch draws less power than the battery normally discharging. I am not sure I described that correctly in my stories. Okay. So I, I'm just going to like say that, it, especially if you put me on the spot, I'm sure I'll get it wrong. But yeah, it doesn't take very much for the low power microprocessors to wake up, check to see if the button has been pushed and then go back to sleep. So it's, okay. it's, it's pretty, they're pretty low power. That's, that's still pretty cool. That's it's a, it's fun. It's and it, like, yeah, it lets you do some weird stuff, you know, because the switch to the flashlight usually needs to, it, uh, previously, like the mechanical switch would need to break the circuit between the battery. And that, that's how they worked. And then the e-switch can go anywhere you really want to put it as long as you can run a wire to the chip where you can check it. So kind of opens up some like new design doors that are that are fun. So Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. So speaking of all these projects, Raymond Freeman asked, where do you find the balance between creating and everything else? Uh, I, I have not managed to find a balance between that yet. You know, it's like, I really, really enjoy the creating part. Like that's my absolute, like, I love doing that. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and think of something and be like, oh, that's a cool idea. And then I'll be able to go back. But then there's stuff like dealing with your accountant or your CPA, and that's just a pain, but I feel like you know, we all have to do that or 
So unfortunately, I, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wish I didn't have to do that. I need to spend a little more time working on the creative side of thing. I've like I've been making a point to do that lately. So, but if anyone comes up with a good idea on how to find a balance, like how to balance those two, please, <laughs> please let me know because I don't know. <laughs> that kind of question comes up very often in this show, and yeah. I think that we're all just searching for a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's not easy for sure. Let's see. C H X C Thorn asked, "Did you ever imagine you'd make such a successful and sought after product?" I know. I I had no idea. I just wanted a flashlight for myself, and then it's just I don't know. It just kind of got out of hand. But I've got a shop full of cool machines now, so it's pretty fun. Yeah, living the dream for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then John Two X asked, "Are you going to release a hat or a cap?" He wanted more things, more ways to support you. Oh, I don't think so. I maybe we will. Well, maybe we will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say that now. I don't think we will, but maybe we will. Okay. Okay. That kind of brings us to shop news and new things. Unless there are there any other stories or anything you wanted to share mm. about the shop? Not, not really. If you come visit the shop, anyone is welcome to come visit the shop. I should say that it's sometimes it's hard to get our flashlights. That's just kind of the way it is. We're a small shop. And, but if you take the time to come visit the shop, I will make sure you get a flashlight no matter what. That's, that's the way it's been. I've had guys like in when we were in Oklahoma City, guys, some guy flew in from New York. We just had random stuff. But if you come by the shop, I'll make sure that you, you can get one. Just give me a little notice before you come by. Okay. So. That's a, a very generous. <laughs> I, I know most people would not openly invite people. <laughs> you know, before before I did this full time, I wrote software and it involved me sitting in front of a desk alone a lot. Like I worked from home and it was just like, I didn't get to interact with people. And now I got to talk to people online, which is great. People come by my shop and say, hi, I've made a lot of good friends. I've made a, a lot of good machinist friends. I just went and visited Eddie up at Nueva Precision. Oh, yeah. This last weekend, I saw his new Mori. Not new, but is Newer. Yeah. Newer. Yeah. That, that was, he's such a cool dude. And then uh, Brad from Hourglass Machine just moved to the the Springs. He's just down the road, too. Yeah. So, like, I'm, I'm super happy that I get to interact with people more. Like, I really like that. That's one of my favorite things about this job. So that's yeah, great. Come, yeah. Come by the shop. Say hi, come by, have a beer, come by. Even if you don't want a flashlight, just come by. Very cool. Yeah. So I guess shop news, new things. You kind of talked about the bike light, anything else, you oh. know, new products, new developments. Yeah. We're kind of working on a work light. And I've been, that's another one of those ideas I've had for quite a while. An electrical engineer who's been helping us with a driver. That's kind of the limiting factor, at least for me. Like I feel pretty comfortable with almost everything, uh, but the low level electronic stuff, I'd like to get a pro's input on that stuff. And he's been helping us. We've got a, a driver that is efficient and has USB-C charging, which is kind of a cool thing. That's so fantastic. To, yeah. USB-C, so, all the things. Oh, I know. I, yeah, it's amazing. So go for it. Oh, I was going to say, I'm not sure when that's going to be done. He's kind of a, he does really good work, but he's very slow. No, no offense if you're listening, but yeah. So okay. I'm not sure when that'll get done, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Very cool. So speaking of drivers and all that, talk to me about how sourcing things for the last year or so has been for being a small company and then getting, you know, electronics made and all that. 
It hasn't been too bad. Like, I think we were, I think it could have been worse. I tried to stay on top of that, like just getting some LEDs. Like that was our last big order. We just bought a whole bunch of LEDs on the boards. And I think, I think they quoted me a three week lead time and it ended up being quite a few. The drivers that we use, normally we use an Atmel 25 and those were hard to find. So we ended up going with an Atmel, excuse me, a tiny 25. And then we ended up going with a tiny 13 just because we didn't need the 25. And they were a little bit harder to find. There's just kind of odds and ends like that. And it hasn't, like we've had to work around a few things, but it hasn't, like there hasn't been a, a showstopper yet. So, and, and I'm pretty stocked up right now. I think it'll, I think we'll be okay for the near future. Okay. And yeah. then you, you mentioned being a small shop and, you know, investing in automation, like the lathe, what is the limiting factor for you getting more lights out and what's the plan to deal with that? Or are you planning on dealing with, um, dealing with that? You know, right now it's, it's probably assembly. The machine work is dialed in. It's automated right now. I can warm the lathe up, set the offsets, get things going and be very happy with the parts that come out. The assembly takes quite a while. The, and, and that's, that's all me. That's kind of hands-on, you know, it takes for anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour to assemble a flashlight. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've talked to, we talked to universal robotics about maybe, um, automating that part. I don't know. I, the, the company that I worked for a long when I was in high school, Mertz, the, the big shop. I'm still pretty good friends with the general manager there. And I was just, I talked to him about manufacturing stuff still. And I was like, you know, I think we could be really big. I think if we put in a work, obviously quite a bit of work, you know, we could be a big company like Surefire or Maglite, if that was like something that we wanted to do. And he's like, I don't know if you want to do that. And I don't, you have a three-year-old, you bring them to work, you show up at nine o'clock, you don't have any board meetings that you don't, you have to go to, <laughs> you, you don't wear a suit or a tie. Right. And if you want to disappear for two weeks and go ride your bike, that's not a big deal. And you've got a shop full of machines and you can use them for anything you want. And, you know, as soon as you have investors or like, if you want to like grow to that level, it's. There's a lot of things that you can't do and, and you should consider that. It's not that this is necessarily a bad thing, but you should certainly think about how good you have things right now. So I'm all for growing, I'm all for scaling up and that's definitely the plan, but I also want to be, you know, careful and at least thoughtful about what I want to do. And, you know, I have it pretty good right now. I've got a cool shop and my three-year-old comes to work with me most days and we have a good time. We ride our bikes around the shop. So... <laughs> that's that's great no yeah. I, I yeah that's I've, I've definitely seen that come up in business books and stuff that like you you kind of have to evaluate where you actually want your company to grow like it, it not everyone needs to be a fortune 500 company you yeah. know yeah i think as as long as that as long as i'm doing creative work kind of original work i'm gonna be happy you know if we don't ever produce tens of thousands of flashlights a year, that's probably going to be okay. I'm not, I'm not really going to be upset about, I'm not going to be upset about that. As long as we're doing like cool stuff, as long as we're doing original work, that's what's really going to make me happy. I think. Yeah, that sounds um, totally. What, what is about the assembly process takes the most time? Is that something that you would automate just to 
take it off your plate so you can do more creative stuff? Yeah, I think so. There's the little, it's called the engine. It's the little copper piece that holds the driver and the emitter board. It takes a little bit to assemble. And then, you know, get it, you know, it's not, um, that process of like assembly process is not a hundred percent reliable right now. So it takes a little bit of work to get things right. And then there's just like a lot of fit and finish kind of stuff, you know, like Making sure that the champers lull look right and making sure that the switch feels good and that it stands on its tail the way it's supposed to. So yeah, I, I think a lot of that stuff is tedious and I would like to get it off. I did mention that we we had two employ employees previously. Mm-hmm. And I would it, it was really easy for me to just throw work at them, be like, take care of this, you know, and not and not think about the process at all. And it's been actually nice having to do it by myself and say, okay, this is not a process that anyone should be doing by hand. We can, we can automate this or at least, you know, be a little bit more clever about how we're doing it. So I think it's been helpful. Yeah, that's great. Is that something you're more apt to hire to take off your plate or to invest in automating? Do you think? I I think invest in automating. I think. Okay. Like, like one of the things we do is we sandblast all the lights. Uh, that's like one of the first things that happens. And I don't think anyone should have to stand in front of a blasting cabinet and blast flashlights. That's just not, that's terrible. No, yeah. one, no one should have to do that. Yeah. So I, if I could automate that and like have a really consistent, consistent way of doing that, that would be fantastic. So but you should check out, if you haven't, I'm sure you've seen it, but Danny Rudolph on Instagram. I've He's, seen his little robot i actually bought all the parts that he used to make that robot and it's one of those projects that i just have <laughs> right yeah you don't have time to do yeah. the project to give you more time to yeah, yeah i i totally i understand yeah so it's it's tough it's really tough well that brings us to the final question of the evening which is what did you research this week and it can be just you know whatever is on your mind lately that you've been deep diving in yeah. Okay. Uh, so I did research, we were talking about the bicycle light earlier mm-hmm. and like most bicycle lights, I'll, I'll explain this for the audience. Most bicycle lights were just run off a battery and you put them on your handlebars. And for the uh, particular style of riding I like to do, generally the lights run off your front hub. So like the front hub on your wheel will generate power and you can use that to power your light uh, or charge a battery in, in the our case. And the specs on the hub say six volts and they are not six volts. Like you'll see anything (laughs) from like 1.5 volts to I think I saw 30 volts. Whoa. Yeah. And and that was with a load too. Like I was just, yeah. So I've been working on a little test stand so we can plug that into a motor and see what the values actually are. So. That was kind of something I've been working on, researching a little bit, trying to get that 30 volts back down to something usable that we can run into a driver without cooking the components. So, yeah, I imagine that's really hard to deal with. Like that, that's quite the voltage spread. It's wild, you know, and it's hard to test too, because riding around at the parking lot with a multimeter in your hand is one, one thing. But if you're, you know, you're in a race and you're going like 45 miles an hour down a hill, there's, I have no idea what's going on. And people do that pretty frequently. So, so talk to me about this race uh, a little bit. I mean, you posted a little bit on your Instagram oh. and Joe talked about it a little bit, but what, what was this race and what are you into besides a Pluma? Yeah. So it's, it was a thousand mile 
bikepacking race, a kind of ultra endurance sport. It's all unsupported, kind of underground a little bit. So there's no like, there's no teams and Audi station wagons driving up and handing you water bottles. There's, there's none of that. It's all like you bring your tent and a sleeping bag, put it on the back of your bike and then eat at gas stations for two weeks. Yeah. So it was a thousand miles across Utah. There was 80,000 feet of elevation change. So you just like went up and down and up and down. There was so much climbing. It was just, it was just obscene. And, you know, I slept in forest service bathrooms. You slept in ditches, anywhere you could sleep. You know, you stop around one in the morning, get up at six or seven and then ride for 16 hours and then do it all over again. Uh, Holy some, cow. Yeah. I've done some longer races. This one was only a thousand miles. I've done the tour divide twice. And this one was just, this was worse. The Utah race was, was just so much more climbing in a short period of time. I got stuck in a flash flood and I had to like leave my bike and get rescued. And then I thought the race was over, but then we were able to get the bike out of the mud and I was able to get going again. It was just so crazy. It was just wild. That's so cool. So, so how did you get into endurance bike racing like oh, that? I've always been riding bikes. Someone asked me that the other day, and I was like, I never really stopped. I rode BMX as a kid, and then I switched to mountain, riding mountain bikes, and it was just kind of like it was just fun, like a hard way to push yourself. I'm not like a super fast cyclist, but I can sit on a bike and pedal and think about stuff for a long time. Just got a fun way to stay in shape, think about stuff. So, jeez, yeah, that's that's some endurance right there. That's really impressive. Thanks. And you had a, a light in case anything went wrong. That I did. It didn't break down on you. So <laughs> it didn't. You know, everything else broke down, but the, the light was okay. So, <laughs> well, that's a, a great full circle. Then, in closing, Patreon thank yous. Thank you to Jake Giles and Tux Garage for joining the Patreon. Let's me send people like Jeff headsets so that we can, you know, have interviews like this. And so I really appreciate everyone who backs the Patreon and thank you so much, Jeff, for taking the time. It's been great chatting with you. Oh yeah, for sure. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week.